We are a culture of maximum choice, aren't we? We like options. We like variety. We don't like to be confined. I don't want you telling me what to do or what I should or shouldn't have access to, right? We like choices. And I can't think of a better example of this than the Oreo. Now, don't laugh at me here. Don't laugh at me. Because most of you know this is true. Used to could, if you wanted a sandwich cookie, you would go to the store, you'd go to the aisle, the cookie aisle, and there you had Oreos. You had two little circles of chocolate cookie with some cream in the middle, right? Now, along came at some point, I don't know when, along came the double stuff Oreo, which I think is one of the great marvels of modern science, one of my very favorite things in the world. Um, but y'all, about within the last 10 years, if you go to Kroger now, today, go to Walmart today, just within the last few years, Oreo has come out with literally dozens of varieties. It's no longer just two circles of chocolate with cream in the middle. You, you can get almost any kind of Oreo conceivable. I made a quick list. This is not a comprehensive list, by the way, but if you go to the grocery store today, you might find golden Oreos, strawberry, PB&J, hazelnut, cherry cola, apple pie, waffles and syrup Oreos, jelly donut, Swedish fish, key lime, watermelon, and of course pumpkin spice. Everything pumpkin spice. Now, it's not unique to Oreo. Other brands do this too. You've, Skittles, I mean, you've, you've, any, any brand name, typically, you'll find just this massive expansion of variety. And you know, I walk down the, the, the cookie aisle sometimes and I think, who in the world is eating jelly donut Oreos? But somebody is. And see, that's the whole point. Supply has to meet demand. This is how it works. Somebody is eating jelly donut Oreos, or somebody would eat them, perhaps, if they just knew that they existed, and therefore they exist, right? We live in a culture of maximum choice. Now, this is not true only about processed snacks, of course. Um, we do this in so many ways with so many things, and sad to say, you probably know it's true if you examine your own heart. It is for me. We do this with God. We do this with matters of faith. I like to pick and choose the things about God I want and then the things that I don't want. Certain character qualities, certain attributes of God I really like. Others are scary. Others are a little more disconcerting. And therefore, I try to maybe pretend like they, they're, they're not really there or I don't have to abide by those things. We do it with Scripture. There are certain Bible verses we love. We hang them on the walls in our house. And there are others that, that make us uncomfortable. We don't love them so much, and so we, maybe we try to ignore them and sweep them under the rug. We like to pick and choose according to our own preferences, and we can do it with God. We can do it with the things of uh, faith. And that's why I think it's important that when we come to the Bible, when we come, in this case, to the Sermon on the Mount, we do our dead-level best, by God's grace, we do our very best, to let the Bible read us rather than we just reading it. To let, to let God critique us, rather than us trying to kind of fashion a God of our own making. We probably do it more than we realize, but here in church we have this wonderful opportunity to open up the scripture and let Jesus set the agenda. And so that should always be our prayer, but that's my prayer for us today. As we look through the Sermon on the Mount, we're, we're closing the door on it here pretty soon. We're almost to the end. Jesus is setting an agenda in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. I mean, there's just no question about it. Jesus doesn't give us a hundred varieties of Christianity in the Sermon on the Mount. He sets a very clear and decisive agenda. He's constantly, we see this, constantly pushing us beyond ourselves. 
He's constantly telling us things that we don't really want to hear. He's constantly exposing sins that I don't want to deal with, that I don't want to acknowledge and take the cover off of and and address. But that's the purpose of Jesus' sermon here. He's trying to reveal to us not the God of our own making and preference. He's trying to reveal to us the one true God and the heart of God for us. And that means that there's abrasion. It doesn't line up with our preferences and in, in, in the end, what we find out, I think, and, and Jesus just says it explicitly here, he is beginning in this section today, he's starting to kind of summarize before he closes. It's like Jesus, we all, you know, the preachers always say, and in conclusion, but it's really 30 minutes still in the sermon, you know, this is what Jesus, this is what Jesus is kind of doing right here. In conclusion, he's starting to summarize. He wants us to really understand explicitly just how narrow his agenda really is. There are not a hundred varieties of Christianity. There's one. And to follow Jesus is to enter into what he says, a narrow path. But in the narrowness, rest assured, we actually find life and and grace and joy. In the narrowness, we end up in broadness. And I think we'll see that as we go through. So we're going to try to cover a lot today. I think we're like 10 or 11 verses today. But there's a pattern that follows everything we're going to look at. There are basically two paths or two kinds of people, Jesus is saying. And he'll use the same idea next week when we close the sermon. There are two paths, there's two gates, there's two kinds of people, there's two responses, right? And so all that we're going to look at follows that same motif. One leads to life, one leads to destruction. Very clear, very simple, but not so easy to stomach, perhaps. Here's what Jesus says, verse 13. He says, by command, he says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, And there are many who enter through it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Jesus Jesus pictures life, all of life, he says, as two gates and two paths. One is very broad. It's like a highway. There are lots of options. You can change lanes. There's a lot of freedom or or a sense of freedom and self-expression, right? You get to pick and choose. The other, he says, is narrow. It's small, it's, uh, it's confining, and there are not, it's not very well-traveled. There are not as many people on the narrow gate. Now, it's no mystery here. Jesus doesn't leave it up to mystery. He, he flatly tells us which one to choose. He says, enter by the narrow gate, right? The wide gate, which is far more popular, is available to you, but it only leads to destruction. Enter by the narrow gate because that gate leads to to life. When I look at these uh, verses, you know what I think about? Maybe it's because we just came back from Disney. I think about Pinocchio. Y'all remember in Pinocchio, kind of in the latter part of the movie, he gets tricked into getting on this wagon, this horse-drawn carriage, with all these delinquent boys, and they're headed to Pleasure Island. Remember this? And he meets Lampwick, and Lampwick's spitting out tobacco. You know, these are, these are bad kids, right? They've all been tricked into going to Pleasure Island. And when they get there, they do a lot of stuff that little boys are not supposed to do. They're drinking beer, they're smoking cigars, they're breaking windows, they're gambling, they're fighting. And then, of course, what's the punishment for their sins? They all end up getting turned into donkeys, right? And the moral of the story is very clear. You see, Pinocchio, if you had been good, if you had been obedient, if you had listened to your conscience, none of this would have happened to you, right? You wouldn't, this wouldn't have happened to you. It happened to them, right? Because they're bad. It shouldn't have happened to you. You should have been good, right? Very clear and obvious moral of that story. Is that what Jesus is saying right here? 
When Jesus talks about two paths, one broad, one popular, the other narrow, the other less traveled, is, is, basi- is Jesus basically saying, y'all, there's bad people out there, but don't you go with them. Don't you end up like them. You stay on the straight and narrow. You be good. The Pinocchio moral. Y'all, that's not the message here. That's, that, that's a very natural way of thinking. That's a very easy thing for us to do with our children, right? To set up very clear lines of morality, of, of choices and consequences, right? But that's not the message of Jesus. Do you notice with Jesus, when he talks about the gate and the path, that the gate comes first? The gate comes before the path. Well, what difference does that make? That's backward from how we tend to think, from what's natural to us. See, the natural way of human thinking is this. I will choose my path in life, and I will walk it. I will live it. And and if I live it well, if I'm worthy, if I'm good, then at the end of life, the gate will be open to me, right? Or if you put it in religious terms, if I'm good, if I'm faithful, if I go to church, if I give my money, if I read my Bible, if I walk the straight and narrow and I walk it well, I prove myself worthy, then in the end, God will open up the gates of heaven to me, right? Because I've proven myself, right? I've, I've reached the goal. But see, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says the gate comes first. The gate doesn't come at the end. Now, why is that? Because in John chapter 10, Jesus said about himself, he said, I am the gate. I am the door that those who enter in through me, they will find life and pasture. Jesus doesn't say, work hard, do good, and eventually the gate will be open to you. He says, I am the gate, enter through me first. Y'all, to be a Christian, first and foremost means you come to Jesus. You come to Jesus. You don't work hard to be good and make your way up to him. He loved you and came down for you. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that we tend to view life as a ladder. And if I can climb up the ladder, eventually I'll show myself worthy and God will love me and accept me. But the wonderful news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that there is no ladder. God in his grace has come down to us. We enter through him. We don't arrive at him in the end if we've proven ourselves good enough. And so it begins, listen, the Christian life doesn't end with the gate being open to you. It begins with the gate being opened. And he is the gate. You come to Jesus Christ himself and you receive his grace by faith. That's what it is to be a Christian. Now, why is it so narrow and small? Well, I think the, the clear and obvious reason is that, that we come only through Christ, right? You enter the gate and the path only one way. There is a broad way full of options, right? Full of choices, full of freedom and self-expression. But if you're going to come to Christ, you can only come through Christ. You can't have Jesus plus anything else. You can't have Jesus plus your own righteousness and your own good works. You can't even have Jesus plus your church attendance. Right? All the things that we might think would add to our account, the Christian life, is this. You come to Jesus, only Jesus, by faith in him. And therefore, it is by definition very narrow. Uh, Jesus said about himself, I am the way, and no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. Uh, In in the Acts of the Apostles, the Apostles preached a message that said, uh, there is no other name uh, under heaven among uh, men by which we must be saved. Only the name of Jesus Christ brings salvation. 
Y'all, there is an exclusivity to the Christian life. And that might make us nervous, that might make us squirm, but this is the truth. If you're going to enter by the narrow gate, the thing that makes it narrow is that only Jesus Christ is our entry point, not Jesus plus anything else. So there are other, there are other ways to live. There is an alternative, Jesus says. There's a broad way, a wide way. Many walk that path, but the end is destruction. The end is destruction. On the surface, it feels very freeing. It feels very good, right? I get to make my own choices. I get to be my own person. I get to live however I want to live. But in the end, Jesus says it it leads to destruction because only in the narrowness of faith, only in the narrowness of faith do we actually receive the good things of God, right? God loves the people on the broad path. But by definition, only those on the narrow path who have entered through Jesus Christ receive life and grace and God's mercy and forgiveness and salvation. So it's, listen, in the the broadness eventually leads to narrowness because everything you build your life on eventually is stripped away and there's nothing left. But Jesus is saying here, listen, the narrowness actually leads to broadness. All the good grace and blessing of God forever. And so you've got to enter in by him. Everything else leads to destruction. Now, y'all listen to me. (laughs) I I used to think this, and so I think it's an important point to make. When Jesus says, listen, the gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life, we might tend to think, okay, Jesus is is telling me here that I've just got to grin and bear a whole bunch of misery until I get to the end and then heaven, right? It's terrible now, but you, you know, just grin and bear it because you don't want to go to hell, right? And so, you know, it's, it's hard, it's terrible, it's miserable, but, you know, eventually it'll get better. Y'all, what makes it narrow is not that it's, that it's bad. See, that's, that's what we tend to think. In a maximum choice culture, narrowness is bad. Confining me is bad. Don't confine me, don't tell me where to go, what to do, right? But listen, what makes it narrow is not that it's bad, What makes it narrow is is that you have to trust someone else instead of yourself. Does that make sense? What makes it narrow is that you have to live for someone else's glory now, not your own, not your own glory or your selfish ambitions. What makes it narrow is that now you you have to lose your own life in favor of finding life in Christ. And in all of those things, of course, those things aren't narrow things at all. Those things are broad and wonderful. God's glory, salvation, his life in you rather than your own life, those are wonderful things. They're not miserable, but you've got to be willing to enter in the narrow way. If you think about, um, if you've ever gone through one of those turnstiles that, that, ha- that has the teeth that go like this, and you're thinking, how in the world am I going to get through one of those? Right? How do you get through? Just you. you can't, if you've got a suitcase with you, good luck. You're not getting it through there. Right? Just you. Only you. When we come to Jesus Christ, we can't bring anything else with us. The gate is narrow, the gate is small, but in it we find life because we receive Christ. Now, Jesus gives us some some implications of this principle. Um, What he says next, he's going to give us two implications, two, two, um, I guess they're kind of like illustrations. People who appear to be on the narrow path, but in actuality they are not. And, and really, if you thought what we just read was troubling, it gets worse, okay? Listen to what Jesus says. Two things. First, he talks about false teachers. This one makes us less uncomfortable, okay? But we'll, we'll, get to the, we'll get to the really hard one in a minute. But look at this, verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. 
Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. Okay, so very specifically, Jesus has in mind false teachers. He's talking about religious leaders, okay? Guys like me. And I have to be sober enough to acknowledge that as a pastor, okay, I could fall into this category. Anybody, he calls them false prophets, false teachers. Anybody, listen, anybody who holds some form of leadership or some form of upfront ministry, Jesus says, beware of them if they prove themselves to be false, okay? Now, this is not just a, a, a Bible problem. Oh, in the Bible times, you know, they had false teachers. It's still a problem. It was a problem in the Old Testament. It was a problem in the New Testament. And it still is today. So how do we know who they are? Uh, I think there, now there are maybe a lot of good, uh, you know, litmus tests for this. I think Jesus gives us two. He gives us one that's implied and one that's very obvious. The implied litmus test for false teaching is this. A, a, a religious leader may say many true things. But he will, in the end, he will not advocate for the narrow path. He will not advocate, promote what Jesus is telling us to do here, to enter the narrow gate of Jesus alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. No. Ultimately, what a false teacher will do, certainly in our culture this is true, he will advocate for your fulfillment and your happiness, for your health and your wealth, and he will talk more about you than he will ultimately about Christ. This is a person who will almost never, if never, say that you are to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus, Luke chapter 9. No, because ultimately that's the narrow path. And a false teacher typically will advocate a path that is far more comfortable and far more apparently successful. Your blessings, right? Regardless of whether you ever submit your life to Christ. That's one way you can know. But then more obviously, Jesus says, there's a litmus test that says you're going to know this person by their fruit. This man or this woman, if you look at their life, you're going to see that the proof is in the pudding one way or the other. A good tree does not produce bad fruit. And we know that to be true. A good, healthy, vibrant fruit tree is not going to produce rotten fruit. But the the, the idea here for when when you're examining a false teacher, or potentially one, or you're examining me, You say, listen, is this teacher living on the narrow path himself? Does his life, does his character match the gospel, or does his character betray him? Y'all see why this is sobering for me? Right? Because I don't want to be lumped into that group. Right? But Jesus is is saying more than just Kyle. It's It's not just being correct in your teaching. Your life has to reflect that the narrow path is real and operational for you. Just because a preacher or an author or a blogger or a TV personality says some true things, some true things does not mean that they are a true teacher because the Christian fruit will either reveal, uh, will reveal, right? Will either confirm or deny the reality. That's why, listen, y'all, there's nothing wrong with podcasting your favorite preacher. I've I've got my own, Okay. But if you don't know him or her, then don't devote yourself to him or her as if they are your pastor, because they're not. They're not. They can't be. They're not supposed to be. They may be a better preacher than your actual pastor, okay? So be it. But they can't oversee your life, and you can't 
you have no window into theirs. Okay? And so you can't, you can't treat that person, you shouldn't treat that person as if they are your spiritual overseer because that's just not how it works. There's nothing wrong with the teaching, perhaps, but you've got to have an insight into this person's life. That's why in 1 Peter 5, elders, leaders of the church, are, are told to shepherd the church among the church, right? Shepherd the flock among you so that we can see uh, the fruit in each other's lives, okay? Um, now, let me say, okay, obviously this is a litmus test for guys like me. But you can apply this to yourself because what Jesus says is generally true as well. Good trees produce good fruit, bad trees don't. And so you have to be able to look in the mirror too, just like I do, and say, okay, is the fruit in my life reflective of what Jesus is talking about here? Does the fruit reflect loving obedience to him? Does the outcome, does the produce of my life reflect that the Spirit of God is at work within me? I'm not saying that we're supposed to be perfect, okay? We, we're no, we're no, we never bat a thousand on this. Okay? We sin. But, but by and large, is there fruit that reveals that I'm a good tree? Because we're going to know each other ultimately by our fruits, and we know ourselves. If we're willing to look in the mirror, the fruit is going to reveal the nature of, of my heart. Okay? So this, this doesn't just apply to false teachers. It does in context, right? But we can, we can see this truth operating in, in our own lives too. Okay? Right. Now for the hard part, okay? Look at me at verse 21. This is one of the most troubling scriptures in the Bible. Um, it just is, no matter how I mean, I, you know, and I'm not going to gloss over it. It's just, it's hard. It's a hard scripture. There are certain people who appear to be on the narrow path, but in reality they are not. Verse 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, <clears throat> I never knew you. Depart from me, you who, practices, you who practice lawlessness. Uh, Jesus says that day, he's talking about the great day of judgment, the day, the last day. He says, many, many will come to me calling me Lord, using the right language. They're going to be saying the right things. And many are going to come claiming deep spiritual experiences. If anybody is on the narrow path, surely it's these people, right? That would be our assumption. That'd be my assumption. But in the end, Jesus says they're going to end up out rather than in. Now, I've always wondered this. Are these people telling the truth? I mean, did, did they really do the things that they're boasting about doing? Did they really prophesy and perform miracles and cast out demons? Uh, we, we don't have any indication that they're telling the truth or that they're lying. We don't know. You know. It's interesting here. Jesus doesn't actually dispute what they're saying. Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't. Just You're just trying to schmooze your way in. You never did any of that stuff. He didn't say that. He doesn't dispute that they did these things. But what he says in verse 23 is, this is, the, this is the issue. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you who live in disobedience. Back in verse 21, he says, only those who uh, do the will of the Father in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven, right? And so at the end of the day, listen, regardless of what these people did, regardless of, uh, of what on the last day they say, Jesus says, you have not obeyed God. You have not done his will. 
You did not repent of your sin, and therefore I never knew you. Jesus doesn't say, y'all, I once knew you, and then you messed it up. You got too full of yourself. No. He says, I never knew you. Never once. Never in the first place. And y'all, that's a clear indicator. If we take what he said earlier, that these people, for all their religious uh, assumptions, for all their religious activities, they never entered by the narrow gate. They never entered by Christ in the first place. He never knew them. The, the, the true faith, which leads to true obedience, was never there. It was all appearance. It was no substance. Now, remember what I said before, that the gate comes before the path for Jesus. The gate comes before the path. Jesus is not saying right here that if you will obey him, you can earn your way to heaven. If you'll figure out how to do all the right things, then you'll end up, you won't end up like these people on the last day, you'll end up in, right? That's, that's not what salvation is, right? You can't earn it by being obedient. But in the case of these people, when he says, I never knew you, he's saying, you never came to me by faith, and therefore you never obeyed the will of the Father. Because you did not come to me for what, what, whatever they did come to, whatever form of religion they did hold to, even if it was very spectacular. Because you did not come to me by faith, because you did not enter the narrow gate, you did not live a life of fruitful obedience to God. So listen, it's not obedience in order to get in the gate, right? We've talked about that. But now having come through Christ, having entered in, he says the path is narrow. It's a life of fruitful obedience which proves, it reveals that genuine faith. This carries through the whole thing, right? How are you going to know false teachers? Even if they sound very truthful, look at their life, look at the fruit. Are they walking in true devoted obedience to Christ? No, that's what makes them false. And in the same way, no matter what I say, no matter how much I call Jesus Lord, no matter how much I appeal to him on the last day, if I did not enter by him, and in response to his grace, if I did not obey him, then he's going to say, Kyle, I never knew you, no matter what you appeared to be. Y'all see why this is a hard scripture? This is hard. Your religious activities, no matter how impressive they may be, if they are not done in faith, then they are ultimately for your glory and not for his. They are for you and not for him, unless you come to him by the narrow gate, unless you come to Christ by faith. That's the problem for these folks. They've done many things but they did them ultimately for themselves. And therefore, they never knew Christ. Yo, what do we, what do we, <laughs> what do we make of this? Yeah, it feels like, I feel like, you know, Jesus starts off with a bang in the Sermon on the Mount and it just gets harder and harder. I feel like, you know, I thought Jesus came to make it easier. You know, I said, what, what, what is this? What do we do? Um, this has always been a controversial scripture. I mean, it was in the, the day he spoke it, it was controversial. And it's just as controversial now. It's narrow. He uses the word narrow. It's exclusive. It is, in our culture especially, a culture of maximum choice. There are other cultures in this world, traditional cultures. When you start talking about narrowness and difficulty and diligence, man, their lights start blinking. Come on. That's, that's how they live. The harder, the better. The more rules, the better. See, our culture, not so much. The narrower it gets, the worse it is. We don't like it. right? And that's why, for us at least, that's why it's so controversial. But when Jesus... When Jesus explains the narrow way, listen, this is not just a problem for us modern-day Americans. Can I tell you this? Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to forget Luke. It's in Luke. Um, 
Actually, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so I'm, I'm, I'm 0 for 3 on this one, but it's in there, okay? There was a time when Jesus was explaining to his disciples just how narrow the way was. He was talking specifically about the issue of wealth, how narrow it is, how hard it is for a human being to be saved. And his disciples looked at him with great astonishment, the Scripture says, and they said, who then can be saved? If it's really this narrow, can anybody go to heaven? That was the disciples' response, okay? So it's not just a problem for us, it was a problem for them. And so we have, we have to deal with this in this narrowness. Are we, are, we in, in, are we threatened, potentially, to end up like these people on the last day on the broad path and didn't even know it or assume that we would be in based on our good works and in reality we were out the whole time? How do we avoid that? Can I take us back to the very first thing Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Jesus gathers his disciples to himself. He opens his mouth and begins to teach them. And the very first thing he says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The very first thing Jesus wants us to know. Favored are you. God blesses you if you are poor in spirit. You receive the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who recognize our own spiritual poverty. In a sense, we recognize our own nakedness, our own inability, our incapacity to do anything that would save us and make us uh, favorable, acceptable in God's sight. And so we we know that we can't do anything to earn what we need from God, and so we have to receive the kingdom instead. And we receive it by rolling all of our weight onto Jesus, by putting all of our chips onto on the table for Jesus and none of it in ourselves. To be spiritually poor means that in a sense, we talked about that turnstile, that when I come to Jesus Christ, I'm not trying to bring anything with me because I know I have nothing. I'm entirely impoverished. I'm naked. I'm a sinner who is lost like the tax collector in the great story that Jesus told Uh, The tax collector beat his chest in the corner, unwilling to even lift his eyes up to heaven, and all he could say was, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, that man left justified. He was saved. He was a bad guy, but he came to Jesus Christ with nothing because he knew he had nothing, and therefore he was saved. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is what it is to be a Christian. You put all of yourself onto God's mercy because you know you have nothing to add. You know you have nothing to contribute. That's the the spirit here of Matthew chapter 7. You enter by the small gate because you know that there's nothing you have to bring with you. There's no other option whereby you're going to find life. It's only in Christ. Um, The life that Jesus offers comes to us only when we are willing to be stripped away of all else, to acknowledge our spiritual poverty, those people receive the kingdom of heaven because they receive Jesus Christ in his fullness. We trust completely in him for our salvation. Narrow is the path that follows that gate because we live for his glory and not our own. It's narrow. You can't change lanes. You, can't, you don't have any options there. You live for the glory of the one who created you and loved you and saved you. And why would you want to live for anything else? It's narrow. It's meant to be. It's supposed to be. There's joy in that narrowness. It's a narrow path because we deny any falsehood and we cling tightly to the truth of God and his word. Um, 
It's narrow because we don't live for our own ambitions, but we live in loving obedience to Jesus, and we do what he calls us to do. It's narrow because in the end, we don't just call him Lord. He is our Lord. He is our Lord. Um, Years ago, there was a preacher up in New England, a man named Dr. A.J. Gordon. Uh, Dr. Gordon would take frequent walks. He would leave early in the morning and walk through the countryside. He loved to do it. When, when, uh, in, the, in the New England countryside, when the, in the morning mist is always kind of just, just right off the ground, it was very clarifying for him, a great time of prayer. One morning, Dr. Gordon wrote about this. One morning, he was walking along a path that he'd never walked before. And up ahead in the distance, he saw a man pumping a well, pumping water from a well. You know, maybe two or three hundred yards ahead. Well, it's along the path, and he continues to walk, and the mist begins to clear a little bit. And he sees up ahead this man... And he's very impressed because this guy is just feverishly pumping this water. He's not taking any breaks. Dr. Gordon thinks, man, I need to go say hello to this guy. I need to introduce myself to this guy. So he walks up a little closer. The mist begins to clear. And as he gets close enough to see him, he realizes it's not a man at all. It's a wooden cutout made to look like a man. And then when he gets really close, he realizes that this wooden cutout is actually a mechanism that is attached to the well as part of the well. It's what we call an artesian well, a pressurized well. And what Dr. Gordon realized in the end is this man was not pumping the water. The water was moving him. And in that moment, the spark came on. He realized what what a picture of the Christian life right there. See, if, if we take the words of Jesus today... And we simply say, there's a path for good people, there's a path for bad people. Don't you end up on the bad path, right? Stay straight, stay narrow, even if it's hard. Do good, keep your, you know, keep your eyes straight ahead so that you don't end up in the bad place. Is that, is that the message of Christ? No. And y'all listen, as natural as that is to think that way, if you live that way, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to do good, I'm going to be in church, I'm, you know, you are not living for God at all. You're living for yourself. You're walking the path in hopes of getting the reward. You're only doing it ultimately, not for God's glory, but for what God might give you as a reward in the end. This is not what Jesus is saying, is that there's good and there's bad. Be good instead of bad. No, Jesus is talking about a path that we can only enter by him. We're not saved by trying hard to be good. We're not saved by walking the path in hopes of one day entering through the gate. We are saved when we recognize our own poverty, our own deep need, and then we see the one who gave himself to meet that need. We see the one who gave his life to save us. And in Christ, what we find, the need for mercy, the need for grace, the need for truth, the need for a good life, a a fruitful life, the need for eternal life. What we have in Christ, we receive from Christ. We don't produce it or manufacture it within ourselves. And in that sense, listen, we're not pumping the well. The endless supply of water, Jesus says, is what he gives to us. The water is moving us. Jesus, by his Spirit, is animating you to produce the good fruit he wants in your life. That's why he said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What we find in the end is that the water, the living water of Christ, is what's moving us, is what's animating us. Listen, to become a Christian, y'all, I said this before, it's worth repeating. To be a Christian is not to look at this narrow way and say, gosh, okay, 
It's going to be hard. But I got to do it. I don't want to end up in the bad place, right? I don't, I don't want to end up on the bad side, on the wrong end of things in the end. So it might be miserable. It might be joyless. It's going to be hard, but I'll just endure it, okay? The Christian life is hard, okay? Let's be clear about that. But remember, in, in the narrowness is where we find life. It's through the narrowness that we find life. There is no life apart from him. There is no life in the broadness, no matter how apparent it may seem on the surface, no matter how joyful and abundant it may seem on the surface, where we get to pick and choose what we want and how we want to live. No, only in Christ can a human being receive abundance. In Christ, God freely gives us all things, the riches of his mercy, the joy of being able to call God your heavenly Father, the fulfillment of all God's promises, they are yes in Jesus Christ, the endless expression of God's glory and his grace, they are all freely given to us, those who find the narrow gate, those who in our spiritual poverty recognize our need for Christ and enter through him. You have to enter naked. You have to enter poor. You have to enter humble. But only by him do we find the broadness of life that God promises us. Yeah, I mentioned earlier the story of the disciples. Jesus is talking about how narrow the way is, and they, with dismay, they say, well, how then can anyone be saved? Who can be saved? You know what Jesus' response was? So wonderful. He says, with people, it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Y'all, left to ourselves, we will end up on the broad road, even if we appear very religious. We'll end up on the wrong road, left to ourselves. But through Christ, through Christ, we end up finding life. We put all our weight and our trust on him, and we find life because it's not about us. With men, with people, it's impossible, but not with God. Who can be saved? With God, all things are possible. That means that when Jesus Christ came to give his life for you, he came to be the gate that we, that we might enter in and find life. And so let, let's pray that God in his grace will draw us to himself because we all need it, that we might put all of our weight and trust on him. That's not a one-time decision, by the way. That's a daily decision, that we might put all of our trust on him and that we might be a people, Harvest Church, we don't just call Jesus Lord. Anybody can call him Lord. Anybody can say it. But that from the very depths of our heart, we would look to him as Lord and cherish him and follow him as such. Let's pray. Father, we don't have anything to bring to you today that is worthy of you. We don't have anything, Lord, that you need from us or that you require from us if you're going to let us in. And we thank you for that. Thank you, Father, that you are the gate uh, in, in, as revealed in your Son, Jesus Christ, that you are the door, that your sheep enter by you. We come in and we find pasture. What a picture. Thank you, Lord, that it's true. Thank you, Lord, that maybe the way we were raised or the way we just have an intuitive sense of we've got to walk this path well if we're going to end up in the end acceptable to you. Father, reverse that for us today that we only walk the path after we've entered the gate, after we've come to Jesus Christ, totally stripped away, leaning entirely upon him. And I pray for us today that that would be a joy, a joy to find in Christ the, the absolute fullness, the absolute broadness of all your grace and glory forever, that we find it in the narrowness of him alone. 
Lord, where this is hard for us, where this is confining, where this is maybe, maybe um, insulting to us. Father, I pray that you, by your, by your grace and by your truth, that you would get to set the agenda today. In my nature, I don't like this. But Lord, uh, you give us a new nature. You come to us, Lord, and you give your life for us. Um, I pray that we would receive you today in new and fresh ways, that we would receive you today and roll all of our weight onto you. And, uh, and in that, Father, that we'd live lives today of fruitfulness, that we wouldn't be looking over our shoulders wondering, is, is, am I in that number of those who will say, Lord, but who won't get in? I pray, Lord, that that, that will not be for us a fear because we can look into our own hearts, our own confessions, and the fruit, Lord, that you're bearing in our lives, and we can know that we are yours. So please make it so today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.